You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Now, an interesting thing happened this week. I I had to uh, make a very humbling admission this week. I had to finally admit that I had lost uh, a pair of wireless earbuds for the fourth time in this past year. Not four times of the same earbuds, but four different pairs of earbuds. Now, I will save a little face here to tell you that I don't buy expensive things. Uh, I feel like I save a little face by telling you that I lose cheap things. Uh, but I am terrible at being distracted. And so what happens more times than it should is I get off of my mower and I put my earbuds in my hand. Now, my, my neighbor is Ken Ballinger, and he lectures me on uh, the sound of my earbuds in my ears, if, if it's destroying me, he, he cautions me of this. I love him. I don't care about it. Um, but anyways, I grab my earphones. He's super safety, all right? Uh, I, I, I go and get flowers with him every year. I don't know if you know Ken. He drives 25 miles an hour all the way to Merle. It takes us two hours to get there, all right? He's just super safety. But anyways, I, I put the earbuds in my hand, and then this is what happens to me. I'm looking around the yard, and just, just some thought bubble comes in my head. Right? I look at the playground, and I see, oh, there's a loose step. And then I start thinking about, okay, I need to fix that. How are we going to fix it? And in the midst of that chaos, like in thinking and walking and talking to myself, somehow I magically drop my earbuds into a black hole, black hole, never to be seen again. So I am a distracted person, if you haven't figured that out. I struggle with attention, yet I know that I'm not the only one in this room that does so. Today, as we jump into Hebrews chapter 3, we are going to find great encouragement to fix our thoughts, not on responsibly placing our earbuds, but to fix our thoughts on Jesus faithfully, consistently, and with confidence. And so we remember so far in our series in the book of Hebrews that this letter is addressing the Hebrews, meaning Jewish people who have converted to Christianity, who live around the area of Rome in the time frame of 70 AD. And so this is a little storm-tossed church that is dealing with great persecution and struggle. And our author has been spurring them on towards faithfulness as the pressure around them in culture mounts up against them. He wants them to not turn back towards their Jewish roots and deny Jesus as their savior. And he does this And he doesn't mince words about it by compelling the necessity and the supremacy of Jesus. He has declared him already in this text as the last and final revelation of God. He has said that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God, that he is better than angels. He is greater than angels and that he came to earth and took on flesh as the son of man, the representation of all mankind in front of a holy God, that Jesus represents us. 
And all of humanity is judged through the life and the death and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so what he is doing is communicating to his congregation that Jesus, because we believe that this is a pastor of, of a congregation that's writing this to the, the New Testament church. He's, he's communicating to his congregation that Jesus is better in virtually every avenue, every thought. He's better in every reality and truth than they could ever imagine. And so from this point, he begins to turn his attention. He begins to focus his attention on the old covenant and the Mosaic law. Now, many in this time, I don't know how many, but they're leaving the church to find relief from the pressure and culture and acceptance in their previous peers in their Jewish faith. He begins by telling them to elevate Jesus as, any, as superior to any person, any covenant, or any role that is found in the old covenant. And so here in chapter 3, he is going to contend that Jesus is way better than Moses. And this is a gigantic deal, and we're going to discuss that today. So let's dive into chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray as we open up God's word today. Lord, we pray that you would use this text, this living word, that you would use it by your spirit to come into our lives, to bring uh, conviction and gladness around you and who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, Lord, we pray for our time in here that you would, you would speak to our hearts that you would open us to what you want to say, that, Spirit, you would, even as we leave here, you would continue to press these things in our hearts. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. And so let's chunk this up and go by verse by verse through this passage. If, if, if we read here in verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, and that term can and does translate into holy brothers and sisters. This is about the family of God. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Now, we recognize that in any time in scripture that we read a therefore, that we must be familiar with what becomes before that therefore to understand what is coming after it. And in this circumstance, in chapter two, the author has explained to them the wonderful necessity of Jesus coming in flesh and the need for his gruesome death. Christ comes into flesh to be like us in every way imaginable so he can redeem us in every way imaginable. And scripture compels to us that through our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice that he is no longer ashamed to call us brother and sister. What a glorious thing that the God of the cosmos calls us brothers and sisters. Not based upon what we've done, 
not based upon who we are, simply based upon who he is and what he has done. And because we are brothers and sisters, and because he is like us in every way, being tempted to like us in every way, we know that Jesus is adequate to help us in our times of struggle, of trials, and tribulations. And so from that, our author turns and says, therefore, because that is true, holy brothers and sisters. Now, this is an interesting Title: Holy brothers and sisters who share a heavenly calling. Uh, it's a it's a, a, a it's a term that should denote what our relationship in here should look like. That we are brothers and sisters, and I think that's hard for us to sometimes get our minds around. I know that. In this earth, you probably have varied relationships with your brothers and sisters, your siblings. There have probably been times in your life that your siblings have acted very foolish, and maybe that has marked you. But if we're honest, if we're honest, there have probably been times in that relationship where we've been pretty foolish ourselves. Regardless of that, though, if you are brothers and sisters, it means that your relationship is determined by birth not by interest. Your relationship isn't based upon you liking the same sports teams. You're not bonded by common interest. You're bonded by common blood. And there should be a loyalty and a commitment and a perseverance in that relationship that is different than the relationships you have outside of that. So what I want you to understand is that there are great implications from this text about our relationships brothers and sisters in Christ who share a heavenly calling. God is calling us towards himself. And so church, I want us to realize, because I think we miss this at times, that there is a wealth of relationship and a depth of love that is available to us right here as people who have come to faith in Jesus. How do we come to faith in Jesus? Well, Christ says this, repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. If we are a faithful people, it means that we are repenting people. And if we are repenting people, we know that we've come to the place where we've recognized our brokenness, we've recognized our our sins, we have seen what we are capable of in flesh, and we have cried out to the sovereign God of the universe to redeem us and rescue us. We are a people that should be steeped in grace, a people that are bonded by the blood of Christ, fellow rescued sojourners in this world. There should be a loyalty and a commitment to one another that is different than our earthly relationships. There should be a grace and a kindness and a gentleness that is heavenly, not earthly. You know, Jonathan and Lisa Ringer uh, are missionaries that come out of our church. They actually headed back into the mission field last week. We can be praying over them. But as they were here for this last year, I sat down with, with Jonathan and Lisa just to kind of hear what's going on. We were talking about their church. Uh, Jonathan said this to me. He said that we have very few Christians in our area. And, and so we regularly, as the scripture calls us to, we, we, we assemble together for worship. But those relationships are still challenging. There are strife and struggles and conflict in the relationships. But what he said next kind of marked me. He said, but we have to work them out. We have to work them out because we rely on each other. We need each other because there's so few of us. And so I think today we might struggle with that. I think we struggle with that because there is such a consumer market in church. 
you can attend any church in the world, almost any church, via online. In our community, we can attend multiple churches anytime we want to. What I fear has happened culturally is that we simply see church as something that gives to us. Church is something that we take from. And the moment that an issue arises or a conflict happens, we are most likely to leave. Instead of dealing with that struggle and dealing with that conflict and resolving it, which actually would promote deeper love and relationships amongst each other. I I was marked by that. And look, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm concerned that this sort of culture has, has permeated itself into church, that we see each other not as brothers and sisters bonded by the blood of Christ, but because church is something about us, we actually see people as potential threats to our happiness, to our comfort, and our rightness. And I think that we have to check our hearts because there is a calling for each one of us to be brotherly and sisterly towards one another. So he calls us brother and sister. Let's define it. But he goes on to say this in verse 1. He says to us, brothers and sisters, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, consider is translated into other translations of the Bible as fix your eyes. Considering expresses a, a, an attention that is consistent. We have an observation that is, that is uh, consistent and, and full to, to fix our eyes on the most significant thing in our life, that it would renew us. If we remember in the gospel of Luke, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, consider the birds of the air. And what Jesus is wanting his people in that time is to consider the birds of the air that they might over and over remind themselves that he is a God that takes care of them. Consider the birds of the air and remember that I am the one that takes care of you. And so if we are to consider God, it must begin with our desire. And we must, as the people of God, we must take our desire and we must teach our soul through the Holy Spirit to desire the things of God. We must bring ourselves in front of God and pray that he conquers our own weary spirit. I love King David in lots of different ways. And I love his prayers in the the psalm. Uh, David in Psalm 27 says these words, just a desirous prayer that God would change his heart. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He pours out his heart to the Lord, his desire. Paul, in our scriptures, he pours out to God in this passionate prayer. He says, I count everything a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I might share in his suffering and become like him in death. What we believe as Christians is that only God can change our desire. And we must dutifully and consistently bring our hearts before him and ask God to lay us open, to love him and serve him more. So considering is about our desire, but it is also about our concentration. And so as a disciple, we have to elevate Jesus over and over and over and over again in the course of our lives. 
I know that there's sometimes that we want to give up that, but that is what he's calling us to, that we would elevate Jesus over and over and over again as we battle the temptation of the world and its pleasures, as we battle the forces of darkness that speaks lies to ourselves in ourself, right? That we would constantly elevate Jesus for who he is, like an athlete, that we would be disciplined, that we grow in that discipline, that we would concentrate more on the Lord, but not just any Lord, and not just any Jesus. It's important to note here that our author defines whom we acknowledge Jesus to be. When we acknowledge, he says, Jesus as our apostle and high priest. Now, this is the only time in scripture that Jesus is ever referred to as an apostle. Normally, that term is reserved for people who are firsthand witnesses of Jesus Christ in the flesh that are sent into the world in ministry. But in this, we learn that Jesus, in fact, is the very first apostle in the world, that he was sent by the Father. Jesus says this of himself in the Gospel of John, in, verse, in chapter 20, he says this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Apostle simply means sent one. And Jesus is the first that is sent into the world. He was sent into the world as an apostle to speak to us on behalf of God. He is God's mouthpiece on this earth. But he also, and this is kind of crazy, he goes the opposite way. Because this says that he is our high priest. And a high priest is somebody that speaks to God on behalf of the people. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, has this glorious role where he speaks on behalf of God to us, but also speaks to God on behalf, well, I think I'm getting those behalfs mixed around there. He's this glorious intercessor, uh, coming in flesh, fully man, fully God, the God-man, to do what? To redeem us and restore us because of his love for us. And so these are great descriptors of Jesus, apostle, high priest, super important that we keep these descriptors connected to the name of Jesus. Notice that our author didn't just say, consider Jesus. And leave it for the audience to sort of define him how they thought they should define him. He asserts the right view of Jesus. He asserts the right truth of Jesus, which means that there is a wrong view of Jesus, that there is a wrong truth to Jesus. And we must consider Jesus the right way, the right one. We must consider the right Jesus, not the one that we want to define not the one the world wants to define, to define, but the Jesus the world, the word defines, the scripture defines. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of confession. Now this term confession implies that we are saying the same thing, that we are saying the th- that we would fight for unity in our doctrine, that we are confessing the very same thing, that as we come to confess our sin and our folly to the Lord, we are being reminded and repeating the very same things in regard to our salvation and our need for Jesus. And as we confess to Jesus with our confessions, uh, our request in unity, the scripture says this, that we will find great rest in him because he is faithful. In verse two, he says, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Jesus also, or Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. 
Now Moses, we're going to get into his status here in a bit. He is regarded as by far the most faithful man in the Old Testament. He presides over God's people with great care, great attention. They're idiots in his time. And Moses is just great. He's just gentle with them. He's patient with them. And the, audience, the author is reminding his audience, uh, which are very much Jewish, they're very Jewish, uh, that they can trust Jesus as one who is faithful to provide care and support and tenderness and grace to them more so than they could have with Moses. And so in verse three, he goes on to say this. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And so there are two contrasts here that the author gives us. There's the contrast of the house versus the builder and the servant versus the son. And these are contrasts that he uses to teach his people, one, that Jesus had a higher calling than Moses, and two, that Jesus was a better person than Moses. And the argument that he is making here is that Moses was simply just a member of the house. He was a faithful servant to the house of God. Now, this isn't a physical building. What he's referring to is the people of God. They are the house. Moses was faithful to the people of God. But Christ is the builder of the house. He's the author of the house. He's the creator of God's people. He is both creator God and glorious redeemer. Moses was a servant. Christ is the son. Now, I don't know if you guys enjoy a good Downton Abbey episode like I do. I've, I've watched them all, okay? Don't, I'm okay with you judging me for that, okay? Because they're good. If you're familiar for, from Downton Abbey, you, you know the terms upstairs and downstairs, right? Where do the servants live? They live downstairs. And their job is to do what? To uphold the honor of the name of the family. And they do that through their work by cleaning, by caring for the family, by making the food. It is a very demanding job. But in that time, was very dignified worth or work because they were upholding the honor of the house. And the house had a reputation that went out through the entire community and through the entire... They were preserving a reputation. But when people would come to the house, did they come to see the servants? No. In fact, it would be a pretty big faux pas if the servants were out in the open when the, the guest arrived. What were the servants there to do? They were to make and prepare the house to bring honor to the name of their master, to bring honor to their family, to make the master look good. And that is what the author is saying Moses did. He was faithful he prepared the way. He testified to the things that were to be spoken of. Moses prepared the house as a servant for the coronation of what? For the Son of God, the creator of all things and the inheritor of all things. I like what Al Mohler has to say about this. Al Mohler talking about Jesus and Moses says this. Moses was a man. Christ is the God man. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin. 
sinless Christ is judged for the sins of his people. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood. Christ changes water into wine. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage to Egypt, but failed to lead them into the land of promise. Christ, the second Moses, leads his people out of bondage to sin and takes them all the way to the eschatological land of promise, which means the final land of promise. What a glorious truth that we have in Jesus. And then in verse 6, Arthur says, and we are his house. We are his house. There is one house, and there is one God. We are the house of God, the people of God whom trust in Jesus by faith. There aren't two houses. There's not an old covenant house and a new covenant house. There is one house. We share in the same house of David and Joseph and Jacob and all the people that we read about in the, in the book of Hosea. All the servants of God are in his house. All the servants in the Old Testament are there and they are preparing the way, they are pointing to the son who has arrived, he's arrived and was proven to be the son. Today, we are servants in the same way to that house. We are servants to our master, Christ. And so what must we do to persevere in that? The author says this, we must hold fast our confidence, our boasting, and our hope. So the author tells this little tiny storm-tossed church that despite their persecution, despite their rejection, what is most important is that they hold on to truth, to consider Jesus, to desire him, to focus on him, to elevate him rightly, to persevere, to not change the message, to not change the truth, not change their focus, and not forget their hope. By no means is the author degrading Moses. He's actually, he's actually putting him in a position of honor, but he makes it clear that Jesus is by far better and more glorious than him. And so look, that is very hard for us to understand. It's very hard for us to articulate within our day the worth of Moses to God's people in that time. He is a national hero. He is an epic leader. He is the mouthpiece of God who has seen the glory of God himself. It's hard to compare him to anyone in this world today. If we were going to try to compare Moses to somebody in this world today, you'd probably have to roll C.S. Lewis, Michael Jordan, Tom Hanks, and Ronald Reagan into one person. Moses is revered at that level. To say that he's esteemed is an understatement. He is godlike, and he has become an idol to some of God's people. Today, because we don't revere Moses like they did, this text might be lost on us. We might not understand the necessity of considering Jesus better than Moses the way that they did today. And so what we have to remember for our encouragement today is that the people who existed in this time in the Hebrew culture very much lived a collective life, meaning that honor and worth and value were very much tied to the health and the wealth of the community that they lived in, not in the individual. Their pride was in the community persevering. Their honor was in the name of the nation. Moses is the pride of the nation. They revere him. He is the embodiment of all that is right and good. 
All that one can hope for and need is seen in Moses. And every subsequent generation after Moses' death desires for one to come like Moses to lead them as well. We don't operate in this sort of collective mentality today. Like there are echoes of it, but nothing like this. We don't find our honor through other people. We don't find our honor through our communities like they did. We are very individualistic in this society. And our worth and honor is found mostly in our freedom to express ourselves as individuals. So today, yes, we elevate Jesus as better than Moses. We don't want to go back to living under the law. Christ is a better covenant. We get that. But more importantly, I think what this speaks to us today is that the only person that we could compare Moses to in our life in the way that they revered and loved him in that culture is ourselves. It's ourselves. We tend to be the people in our lives that we honor the most. We tend to be the people in our lives that we look out for the most. We tend to be the people that we trust the most. And so what we have to take from this test is that we must make Jesus better than ourselves because we are the nearest embodiment of Moses in our day. And so look, it is easy in this room to check the box next to the phrase, consider Moses or Jesus better than Moses. Check that. I get it. But we would be hard-pressed to check the box that says, consider Jesus more important than ourselves. You may think that, but the evidence of our life probably reveals a different truth. And so our reminders today, friend, is this, is that we must consider Jesus better than everything, that we must elevate him into his proper role, that we have to bring our desires in front of the Lord and stay focused, consistent, bring our attention to Jesus. And here's the other thing, that we have to do this together. You cannot be on an island and be a follower of Jesus. I know there are many people who think that you can live outside of a church community and be a follower of Jesus. Look, I, I, I'm not going to make grand terms in whether one can be saved or not when they're in their church, but I'm telling you, it is not wise. We need each other. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the house of God. God dwells with his people, and we need each other to root on each other, to encourage each other, to even rebuke each other, to correct each other, to journey through conflict together that we might elevate Jesus more in our lives. Michael Kruger says this. He says, in our world today, the spirit of individualism reigns supreme. It is tempting to think, I don't need a church. I'll just show up, I, I'll just show up when I feel like it. I might hope, hop around and, and do a little church shopping, figure out what I like, and if I don't like it, I'll move on. That is the spirit of the age, but that is not the spirit we see in the book of Hebrews. You are the people of God, and God dwells in your midst. That means it is vital to be committed to one another and linked together as his people. I think that is a glorious truth that we must remember. And so let us today, let us let the Holy Spirit ask of us, are we considering him? Are we persevering in our faith? Or are we being jostled around by the waves of this world as we're drifting away? 
Is Jesus as dear to us today as he was when we first met him? Are we holding on with confidence to the hope of Christ? Are we boasting in our hope? Are we proud of the gospel? Are we proud of the gospel? Was there a time in our life that, that when we first came to faith, there was a fresh glow in our lives that, that maybe we have lost that glow? That maybe we would let the Spirit speak to us. And if so, and that we deem that we have lost our focus and concentration, that we would let God's word reign true, that we would hold on, we would focus to Christ, our great and superior apostle and high priest. And to remember that today, we are going to join together in a meal called communion. And we remember today that it is because of the risen Christ that we can join together as a community of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live as he taught, and to strive to be his faithful servants in this, our time and place. In this meal, we remember Jesus We remember his promises. We remember the price that he paid, who he was, what he said, and what he did. On the night before Jesus died, he took the loaf of bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said this, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and poured out it, saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. And so today, we remember him. We do this together. We remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, his raising to life again. And in this meal together, we share a shared proclamation of faith that Jesus has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Will you say that together with us? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The body of Christ is represented in the bread represented in the cracker, the lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people that we might remember him. And so let us go into this time and spend a few moments contemplating our hearts, seeking forgiveness, confessing our sin, making things right. If you have a brother and sister that you have sinned against, that you've you've got a broken relationship, I'm telling you, go fix that. The scripture commands us to go fix that before we join him at the table. But let's spend a few moments in prayer. If you're in here and you haven't made a decision, if you're not a follower of Jesus, know that we're glad that you're here, but understand this is a shared meal for the family of God, and we should take that seriously. Husbands, wives, you are the chief disciples of your family. You should determine whether or not your child is ready to take in these uh, symbols. And so let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer, the band is going to play some music, and then you partake of the emblems when you cho- choose to do so.